It reminds me of the words uh, in Christ alone a little bit. Uh, Some of the words, one of the verses being, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is another privilege that we gain thanks to justification from our Father. Um, Romans 8, a couple of chapters later, says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. So because of our past, because of this forgiveness that happened in the past, we now presently get to experience grace. And in Psalm 103, it says that God separated us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. That is our present privilege and grace that we get to stand in because we have done nothing. (laughs) We have done nothing to gain this. And the future part is maybe a little bit harder to describe and to, to make sense of because this passage tells us that we have we are able to look forward to the future because we are able to rejoice in our sufferings. And that's hard to do. It's really difficult in the moment of our suffering, whether we're suffering on behalf of Jesus or we're suffering because of sin that has entered our world, that has broken us, it's really hard to see in the time how to rejoice in that. Often, afterwards, we can look back and say, man, so great, God is at work, great, awesome, hallelujah. But that doesn't really help you in the moment when all you feel is sorrow and pain. So I'm not sure how to tell you how to rejoice in suffering because I'm not sure I know how to get there myself. But what I do know is that we do have hope. There is significant hope that comes through our suffering. And Paul tells us there's actually a couple things that we get when we suffer. So it starts with suffering and ends with hope. And the stuff that is in between is perseverance. We learn perseverance. Through perseverance, we learn proven character. And through proven character, we understand hope. And we can see that hope, the light at the end of the tunnel, the salvation, the inheritance, heaven, that we have on the other side of the suffering. So as abstract as that is, that is what our hope is. That's what we have on the other side of suffering. And for many of us, when we're in the midst of suffering, we see that. We see the hope and we get to embrace it. And verse 5 tells us the main reason that we have hope. It says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Which is a great segue because then Paul spends the whole second half of this passage talking about love. He's saying the whole reason you can have hope is love and now let me explain love to you. And Paul teaches us this by using this idea of comparing lesser and greater. Uh, Jesus does this in Matthew 7 um, when when he says this, Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So there's often this comparison of, this is good, this is a good thing, but how much more would that happen if blank? 
So Jesus uses this, Paul uses it in many of his letters, and he uses it here in Romans to kind of explain how God's love is actually greater. And so he says this, if God loved us enough to send his son to die for us while we were his enemies, how much more would his love abound when we are his children? That's part of our hope that we look forward to, that we are his children and we get to see his love abound so much more. And so it's a little bit hard to grasp and hard to quantify, in my head at least. So I'm going to do a little bit, just, just imagine with me that I have these stacks next to me. We'll call them love bricks. I don't know, the amount of love in each brick, okay? You're going to have to stretch your mind for this one. I'm so sorry. So if God loved us this much for while we were his enemies, he sent his son to die for us, which is a lot. That's a lot of bricks, as you can see. If God loved us this much for the, to send his son to die for us while we're, we were his enemies, how much more would he love us when we are his children? How much more would his love abound when we are his children? More love bricks. I don't know what the difference is, but that much more. That's what Paul's trying to get at, is saying that there's actually maybe more love abounding now that we are his children. Which is hard to grasp, hard to understand. He says in verse 10, For while if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And I think often we, we think of the peak, the crux, the ultimate amount of God's love was him sending his Son to die for us. That that was, that was the ultimate. It was the ultimate sacrifice. It was the greatest price, as we sang. He has paid the highest price. That was a big deal. But God's love actually abounds longer than that, more than that. If you ask anyone who's been a believer in Christ and a follower of Christ for many years, they will tell you that they have experienced God's love much longer and for a lot longer than the time they were saved. They experienced his love then, but they also continue to experience his love post-salvation. And one of the commentaries said this as well. If he has already paid the highest price to bring us to reconciliation, to bring us into relationship with him, is it likely that he would forget about us now? Probably not, I would say. And there's another quote that said this. If his death had such power to save us, how much more will his life have power to keep us? It's the idea of his love abounding more after salvation. Now, I've never been a mother. I've never given birth to a child. So this analogy might fall a little bit flat in some regards, but I ask you to maybe use your imagination, or if you are a mother, give me grace if I get these things wrong. But think of it this way. When you are a mother, you experience some very uncomfortable times when you're pregnant, correct? There is you, you have love for your child, even though you haven't met them yet. You have love for your child through the nausea, through the pain, through the uncomfortableness, through the waddling, through all of these things that happen when you're pregnant. And even through the birth pain that I will never understand, 
Through the pain of giving birth, there is an, an insane amount of love that you have for your child when you hold it in your arms for the first time, I imagine. Hopefully. <laughs> that is not the peak. That is not the peak of your love for that child. I would, I would guess. I would guess that your love for that child continues to grow now that it is a part of your family. You love that child as they grow up, as they throw up, as they poop everywhere. It doesn't matter. You see this child flourish and become an amazing person. And your love continues to abound and grow for your child after your child is born, and after your child is a part of your family. So in our case, after we have been made a part of God's family, we even use the term reborn, born again. After we are made a part of God's family, I don't think that God's love just stays there and continues to fall off a cliff. That's not the peak, I don't think, for us. I think that, according to Paul, God's love actually abounds more once we are his children. And I think that is a part of the hope that we're supposed to see on the other side of suffering that maybe we don't really get. But we can hold on to the fact that God's love will continue to abound in us as his children when we sit in suffering, when we sit in sadness, we sit in pain. We can look forward to that. We can hold on to the fact that God's love abounds for us. And I think that helps me understand this rejoicing and suffering a little bit more. I tried to go another analogy and think of um, some kind of pop culture reference that I could make to this. And it fell, it fell a bit short. Um, but the best part about this love is that it's unconditional. So I tried to think, okay, what, how can I make sense of unconditional love? And of course, the first thing that came to my mind was the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> now, if you, maybe you're older than I am, and your kids listen to the Backstreet Boys, or maybe you're a child of the 90s like I am, and you listened to the Backstreet Boys growing up, they were the epitome of love songs. They had girls everywhere going nuts for them. I listened to basically every song they ever recorded. They were awesome. They explained love in a bunch of ways that people had never heard before. And one of those ways was a song called As Long As You Love Me. And the chorus went, I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love me. And as great as that is, that is a conditional love, right? The last line is, as long as you love me. As long as you love me, I won't care who you are, where you're from, or what you did, as long as you love me. So there is actually a condition there. Whereas God is, if God was to say this, he would say, I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, I already love you. It's an unconditional love that already exists for us, and we have done nothing to gain it. We have done nothing to make this happen for us. I hope you're grasping the, the line that I'm repeating over and over again, because that is the whole idea of justification by faith. That as good as we are, and good deeds are a good thing, if you read anywhere else in Scripture, it tells us that good deeds are good, that we should continue to do them, but they don't gain us salvation. They don't gain us forgiveness or love from God. That is already there for us. 
So I don't care who you are or where you're from or what you did. God loves you already. There is love for you there. Verse 8 tells us of this unconditional love when it says that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies of God. We were in, if it was possible to be in his bad books, we were in his bad books. We were so far from being holy people. And we all still fall. We all still make huge mistakes. And we fall short of God's glory, as we read in Romans elsewhere. But God's love is still there for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is an abundance of God's love for us. And that explains our past forgiveness, our present grace, and our future hope that we have. Another commentary called this love supernatural and otherworldly. Which is actually probably as close as you can get to describing an indescribable love, realistically. Because if it's supernatural, it means it exists outside of natural belief and natural understanding, an unconditional love. If it's otherworldly, it's not of this world. We would say both of those things about God's love. It exists outside of nature, and it exists outside of this world. Those are words to describe this love for us, that we sit in now because of the forgiveness we have been given. And once again, we have done nothing to gain that. One of the commentaries that I was reading as well talked about how this, this whole passage kind of gives us six benefits of justification. And I've discussed a lot of them already. But if you're a list person, this is for you. <laughs> One through six. Six benefits of justification. We have peace with our Creator, where there wasn't peace before. We have a position of favor with God that wasn't there before that we don't deserve. We get to rejoice in the hope of glory of God because of the abundant love that exists for us that we have done nothing to earn. We have glory in our tribulation that we gain perseverance and proven character and hope through. We are eternally secure in Christ and we rejoice in God through Jesus. Those are six practical benefits of justification. Some would say of the gospel that we have in front of us. So my question now is, is what's next? Say that, say that we grasp this. Say that we understand. Say that we, we get where we stand in this now. Say that we understand the whole thing. What does that mean for us? I had a professor in, uh, in college who, whenever a student would tell him something great about what they learned about God or what they, whatever, he would just say, so what? And it wasn't an angry thing. It wasn't an aggressive or, like, standoffish thing. He was saying, so what? What are you going to do about it? So if a student learned of the great abundance of God's love for them, he would say, awesome, I'm pumped for you. What are you going to do now? How does this change you? How does this transform you? And so for us, I have to ask this, too. What's next for us? So what? So what we've been given unconditional love? So what we've been given peace with our Creator? 
I think this means a couple things for us. I think the first one is that we need to be a lot better at rejoicing in Jesus. We need to celebrate this like it's new for us. David prayed that God would restore to him the joy of his salvation. I need that. I need to be reminded of the joy and the insanity of God's love for me and the fact that he died for me when I wanted nothing to do with him. Before I knew who Jesus was, I couldn't care less. There were times where I knew who Jesus was and I couldn't care less. And God still died for me to forgive me of that. I think, number one, we need to rejoice in Jesus. I think we need to celebrate the fact that we have been forgiven a lot more. I think that starts to change our hearts and our attitudes a lot more. And I think that for some of us, we might understand this better. Before we were saved, so if you, were, if you became a believer later in life, your teenage years or afterwards, you would probably agree that you at one time found joy in things that were not of God. That I don't know what it was. I'm not even going to suggest things that it might have been. But you found joy and you found completion and you found satisfaction and wholeness in things that were not of God, things that were not Jesus Christ. But I think another practical thing we need to do in understanding this is putting our satisfaction, our hope, our wholeness, our completeness in Jesus. Finding our identity in him, not in other things that we may do. I think that's a big deal when we, we start to see the breadth of his love and his forgiveness for us. Because if we're supposed to rejoice in our tribulations and we're supposed to rejoice in suffering, I think the only way we can do that is if we really focus on the center of that box that Dale was talking about. We focus on the center, which is Jesus. That's when we can start to rejoice in our suffering. And I'm not trying to paint a pretty picture and tell you that, that you can just be happy when you suffer at all times, because we all know that's not necessarily true. We've all gone through things where we fully admit it's the worst parts of our life. And it's not easy to see the roses on the other side of that. But all I'll say is if you start clinging to Jesus, that might change for you. I don't know what that looks like for you. This is very postmodern of me, but my suffering is not your suffering. What's suffering for me might not be suffering for you. But if we cling to Jesus and we look to him in the midst of our suffering and say, okay, Jesus, what, is, what goodness can I take out of this? How can you help me to look for hope? I believe that will come for you. And I think this, the third big thing for us is that we need to share that love. I think we need to share that. If we, even if we have the slightest understanding of what this love might mean for us, I think we share that. I think, number one, we share that with people who don't know. I think we share that with people who don't know the love of Christ. Because if that has so fundamentally changed us that we've completely altered our lives to follow it, it must mean something to us. And I think we share that. I think we share that with our coworkers. I think we share that with our neighbors. I think we share that with the downtown core of Saskatoon. I think we share that with the suburbs. I think no matter where we are, we need to be shining through so much that Jesus is seen in the way that we act. And again, I don't know what evangelism or sharing this looks like for you, but you do. And I think the other way that we share this love is right here. 
Take a look at your row. Look at your row. Look at the people in your row right now. Look at the people behind you. Everyone that you lock eyes with just now has a different experience of God than you do. They understand God's love a little bit differently than you do. And I think that as a church body, we often, I think, I think what we need to do is we actually need to share our experience of God's love with the people around us. And I think that as an intergenerational church, where we have so much wisdom and so much knowledge and so much joy and excitement for what God has done for us, I think we share that with the younger generation. We see that in so many different ministries in our church. We do. But I think this also happens outside of program. I think this happens where if you are 80 years old and you're, and you're friends with a 60-year-old, I think you share wisdom and God's love with that 60-year-old. And I don't think there needs to be judgment there of saying, hey, look, I'm older than you. You might not know God as well as I do, so I'm going to share it with you. I think what happens is you just say, hey, look, we've experienced God in different ways. Let's share that with each other. I think if you're 80 and you're sharing that with a 60-year-old, or whether you're 80 and you're sharing that with a 12-year-old, I don't think that changes. I think we need to share God's love with other believers to build up the church body as well. I think that's a big part of our call as the body. I, I want to I pray for us, because there's a lot of things that, that we have covered today, and a lot of actions, maybe, that, that might not make sense to us, that we might not know how to take next steps for. And so I want to pray that, that the Holy Spirit actually reveals that to us, and that we understand this in a greater way. So pray with me, please. God, thank you for your abundant love. I pray that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation. I pray that we would understand in greater ways the things you have done for us and the love that you so freely share with us. And God, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit shows us where we need to share that love. I pray that we would be your hands and feet, God, that we would be people who would be sharing your love and sharing the idea of your forgiveness um, with people around us and with the rest of the world. God, we don't know what next steps to take necessarily, so we pray that you would show us and that we would respond well. And the only way we can ask these things is by nothing that we have done. But we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.